Welcome back, campers. That's Genevieve. And that's Caitlin. And this is the true crime podcast we decided to start while we both have infants because we're gluttons for punishment. Yes, we are. (laughs) Uh, Question, Caitlin. What pops into your mind when you think of Australia? Toilet spiders? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Toilet spiders... Uh, But it also might be those terrifying TikToks of kangaroos with six packs or the beloved crocodile hunter Steve Irwin, whom none of us deserved. But after today, we're afraid you're never going to hear the word Australia without a shiver of nope again. In the late afternoon on March 1st, 1989, police and ambulance sirens blared down the street of the quiet and affluent suburb of Mossman in Sydney, Australia. Residents of an apartment building on Military Road rushed out in alarm when their neighbor, 82-year-old Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill, was found unconscious in a pool of blood by two terrified boys on their way home from school. Her well-meaning neighbors believed the elderly woman had suffered a fall and, in an effort to be helpful, they scrubbed away the blood from the sidewalk outside of her door. But tragically, Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill would not survive and the truth of her supposed fall was far more sinister. Gwendolyn had been viciously attacked in broad daylight, sustaining blunt force wounds to the back of her head and all over her body, including several broken ribs. $100 had been stolen from her purse, and since there were no eyewitnesses and any possible forensic evidence had been washed away, police were left to assume that this was an isolated incident of a mugging gone very, very wrong. In actuality, the elderly woman had been spotted leaving the Mossman RSL, a war veterans club, and followed her entire walk home by a predator who blended seamlessly into the suburban surroundings. Even as he paused at his car, tucked a claw hammer into the waistband of his jeans, and viciously attacked the elderly woman as she reached to turn the key in the lock. We're going to do our absolute best today to peel back the layers of the psychologically complex and incredibly cowardly Onion, who is arguably Australia's most prolific serial killer, John Wayne Glover, the Granny Killer, or as we prefer to call him, the Coward Killer. Hang on to your handbags, campers, because camping is cancelled. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. John Walter Glover was born in Wolverhampton, England on November 26, 1932 to working-class parents Walter and Frida Glover. Walter and Frida separated when John was a young boy and John was raised by Frida with whom he had a complicated relationship. Throughout John's childhood, Frida dated multiple men and had four husbands by the time John was a teenager. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with dating multiple people, it didn't help John's self-esteem that she often expressed to John deep dissatisfaction with men in general and was quick to break off her relationship as soon as they'd begun, saying that no man was good enough for her. John would later express that her constant jumping from relationship to relationship, as well as her making him go along on her dates, created an environment of instability and inferiority complex for him as a young boy that he would never be able to separate from. And the anger he felt towards Frida for what he and probably everyone else in the 1940s considered to be promiscuous behavior only skyrocketed when he happened upon several pornographic photographs of her. Yeah, that's not great when your frontal lobe is developing and maybe the first sexy photos you've seen are of your own mom that would that would do damage on anybody yeah by the age of 14 john was already known to wolverhampton police as a petty criminal for stealing clothing and handbags and he carried this habit with him into his brief stint in the military before he got kicked out for stealing. In 1957, at the age of 25, he immigrated to Melbourne, Australia and got a job on the tram lines as a conductor. Now, you'll have to look up pictures of Glover or you could check out the post on our Instagram and follow us at Camping is Cancelled to see what you think. But around this time, Glover fancied himself to be a good-looking and charming ladies' man. And it was around this time that he changed his name to reflect this true self from John Walter Glover to the Hollywood cowboy leading man, John Wayne Glover. Isn't it funny that he said his true self because his true self is a John Wayne, John but Wayne. 
not John Wayne. The cowboy. Right. Not that John Wayne. It's John Wayne Gacy and John Wayne Boyer and John Wayne Bobbitt and basically every other white trash John Wayne that ever existed. And a reminder not to name my future children John Wayne Wilhelm. (laughs) Yep, uh, we could scratch that name off the list. And I do also want to point out that with Ed Kemper, we talked a lot about how Ed Kemper had the dead-eyed, creepy look, but John Wayne Glover really did have that kind of mischievous, boyish, charming look about him, and especially when he was young, and I can see why people would have found him disarming and mm-hmm. easy to be around because he doesn't look creepy he just no, looks he like looks very casual yeah. like like just like not normal but like the normal like dorky yeah he looks like somebody who you would tailgate with at the football game he's just an average his eyes aren't dead no and he, he doesn't scream he wants to you know <laughs> attack my grandma or eat your eyeball yeah he's yeah, just thank God. <laughs> he really does have that kind of all-american boyish look about him so which in my opinion makes him creepier yeah yeah i don't like the normal looking ones they ugh. yeah so don't look normal everyone <laughs> So the tramline conductor gig didn't work out because John was once again busted for stealing from his co-workers and shortchanging passengers. And in the early 1960s, he moved to a boarding house on the outer edge of Turek, where he lived with 21-year-old Jackie Kazumuto and several of her girlfriends. Jackie recalled about John that he was charming but odd. For example, she said John would only wear very soft slipper-like shoes around the boarding house and loved to just turn up out of nowhere and make the young woman startle, and he thought it was hilarious while they definitely did not. I will never give my husband shit again for stomping around the house like a clawed hopper. It's true. That is so creepy. A young man wearing soft slipper-like shoes so he could purposely creep up on you? No. Hard no. We'll just wait for this. Jackie remembered one incident where she was in the shower and suddenly realized John was in the bathroom with her, standing silently on the other side of the curtain. Nope. Eh. Like, oh, would I, he would have had a plunger up his ass. Uh Uh-uh. And he would have deserved it too, because you do not do that to somebody. That's creepy. Absolutely not. Ugh. One of Jackie's friends actually started dating a police officer, and when he came over to the house to hang out, he didn't particularly like the vibes he got from John, so he actually looked John up in the police database and brought over his record to show the young women and be like, hide your kids, hide your wife, because he's got a record. Hide your kids, hide your wife, (laughs) hide your kids. Good boyfriend. Really good boyfriend. Yeah. One Saturday evening, Jackie and her friends were enjoying a drink on their veranda when one of them said, um... Isn't that John over there across the road? And there his little creepy ass was, peeping into their neighbor's windows. Oh. No. This incident majorly disturbed the young woman, rightfully so, and they became extremely wary of John after that. I would be extremely by bitch to John after that. His lease would be up. Yes, ma'am. He would be packing his bags. His shit would be on the lawn. I would pick up an extra shift at McDonald's to cover his rent. Mm -hmm. Lots changed. Gone. Bye. Not only was John already exhibiting deviant behavior with the Peeping Tom incidents and his general creepiness with his housemates, something even more violent was lurking beneath the surface. In 1962, while working as a television rigger for ABC and living in the suburb of Camberwell, he was convicted on two counts of assaulting women in Melbourne, two counts of indecent assault, one of assault causing actual bodily harm, and another four counts of larceny. Both attacks were reported to be extremely severe, and both women had articles of clothing violently torn from their bodies. In one of the instances, a 25-year-old woman was on her way home from a meeting at about 10.30 p.m. when she was followed, chased down a dark suburban street, and knocked unconscious to the ground. The attacker made a run for it when her screams alerted residents, and she eventually woke up in a garden, bleeding profusely with her underwear in total disarray. He was given a five-year good behavior bond in order to seek psychiatric help. I mean, he definitely needed psychiatric help, but no. Police did leave a note on his file that he would probably become a serious sex offender, so that was nice of them. That makes everything okay. It's something, I guess. They're like, that's future Australia's problem. 
Just a couple of years later in 1965, John would plead guilty to more Peeping Tom charges. But apparently nothing really came of this because, however it was handled legally, in 1969, John met a young woman named Gay Rolls. And the two of them got married and moved into her parents' home in the upmarket North Shore suburb of Mossman. And I do just need to say that I am not gay, but I wish that I was because would open a bakery and immediately name it oh my god gay rolls i'm over here like that's a horrible name but that's <laughs> genius gay rolls has such a nice somebody do that somebody do that it. i'll eat there mm, i like yes. bread gay is blissfully unaware at this point that her husband is actually a convicted and violent criminal and john got a job with the company four and twenty pies as a traveling meat pie salesman and regularly volunteered at his local senior citizen society visiting with the residents of the nursing home over the next 20 years john and gay lived a seemingly quiet life they had two daughters and friends of the couple described john as an easygoing and trustworthy family man but John was keeping something hidden that was pretty unusual and, shall we say, niche? That no one suspected its existence for the better part of 20 years. John Wayne Glover was a gerontophile. And no, this isn't a type of prehistoric dinosaur. Individuals who are gerontophiles have the unique sexual preference of gerontophilia meaning that their primary sexual attraction is to the elderly, with the key factor being that gerontophiles are actually dependent on having or imagining sex with an elderly partner in order to achieve orgasm, not simply that they are willing to do so. It is the literal elderly body with all the physical signs of old age that is most appealing to the true gerontophile, such as fragility, wrinkles, stooped posture, white hair, slow gait, etc. Were there's originals, Little House on the Prairie reruns. Shut up. That's literally me. No. Oh my gosh. You didn't have to add the Little House on the Prairie. I didn't have to make it personal. Oh. Well... John Wayne Glover would have lived. I mean, we did work in a nursing home for, I've spent maybe seven years of my life with geriatrics and I am one of them. I mean, they've got it figured out. So it's kind of good that that rubs up on you. I mean, rubs. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck me. (laughs) Scratch that one out. Do not rub up on an elderly person unless you have their full and enthusiastic consent. Exactly. (laughs) So Glover was definitely not volunteering at his local nursing homes or making it a point to have nursing homes as regular stops on his salesman route in an effort to give back. He was going so that he could be surrounded by and stare at the bodies of elderly women. And for a while, the visual stimulation he was getting from these nursing home visits was enough. But as we so often see in true crime, when a violent offender goes through that escalation phase, there's always a pressure cooker of multiple stressors brewing away that eventually boil over into violence. In 1976, John's mother moved from the UK to Australia to live in a nursing home, and John hated being confronted once again with the person he associated as the key source of his instability and inferiority as a child. Between visiting Frida and living in the same place as his mother-in-law, Essie Rolls, John was unable to ever completely get away from these oppressive maternal figures in his life. John found Essie to be incredibly demanding and meddling, and she and John would get into such frequent and terrible arguments that it eventually led to his and Gay's divorce, and Gay's acquiring full custody of their two daughters and relocating to New Zealand. While living in Australia, Frida was diagnosed with breast cancer, and shortly after, John was diagnosed with male breast cancer as well. He had a double mastectomy and survived, but the cancer and ensuing treatment had left him impotent, which only served to further the anger he already held towards his mother. By early 1989, Frida was very ill and near death, and John Wayne Glover was at his tipping point as he faced the reality that this woman whom he'd both loathed and loved was about to be gone forever. On January 11th, 
84-year-old Margaret Todd Hunter was walking down Hale Road, Mossman, when she was spotted by Glover from his car. In a split-second decision, Glover parked and swiftly approached the elderly woman. He punched her in the face, stole $209 from her purse, and left her lying on the sidewalk. He then went to the Mossman RSL Club, where he spent all of Mrs. Todd Hunter's money on the fruit slot machines. Police believed the crime was a mugging and held little hope of finding the perpetrator. Miraculously, Margaret Todd Hunter did survive. Criminal behavior experts have pointed out many times that the timing of violent offenses are always significant to an offender because there are typically emotional triggers that are only known to that offender and investigators have the disadvantage of working backwards to pinpoint the clear moment for a suspect that could have pushed them over the edge. For Glover, this was January 21st, 1989, the day that his mother Frida died, and Sydney's North Shore upmarket suburbs had no idea that they were about to enter a year-long living nightmare in which police would be grappling with a serial killer that they had never before encountered. Glover's first victim would be 82-year-old Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill, who you remember we spoke about at the beginning of our story, and who was found unconscious and lying in a pool of blood on her doorstep by two young schoolboys. Glover would later tell journalist and author Lindsay Simpson in prison that it had been the sight of Gwendolyn's hair as she walked down the street that sent him into a blind, murderous rage because it was white and styled exactly like his mother's. On May 9, 1989, Glover was walking along Military Road when he saw 84-year-old Lady Ashton, the widow of the prolific Australian artist Sir William Ashton, walking towards him on her way home to nearby Raglan Street. Glover put on a pair of gloves and followed her into the foyer of her apartment where he attacked her with a hammer, threw her on the ground and dragged her into a trash bin alcove where he repeatedly struck her head against the pavement. Glover recalled that Lady Ashton had actually almost overpowered him until he fell on top of her and struck her head against the pavement. Once she was unconscious, Glover removed her pantyhose and used them to strangle her. He then placed her walking stick and shoes neatly by her feet and stole her purse containing $100. He headed back to the Mossman RSL, where he apparently commented to staff that he hoped the sirens outside weren't for another mugging. The police would find Lady Ashton lying face down diagonally across the concrete floor of the small bin alcove with a pool of blood around her head. Her pair of pantyhose had been removed and cinched so tightly around her neck that it cut into her skin. A thin trickle of blood ran out of her mouth, her bare legs were crossed, and her arms were placed neatly by her sides. At this point, the police knew that they were facing a serial killer. To date, all three victims were wealthy elderly women, all were from the same North Shore suburb of Mossman, and all had been assaulted or killed in the same vicious manner before being robbed of their handbags. Lady Ashton's autopsy indicated no signs of semen, and the examiner noted that her diamond ring was still on her finger, which would suggest that she hadn't actually been killed for her money. While the term serial killer is extremely common now, it was actually only defined in the 70s by the FBI as a man or a woman who killed three or more people over a period of time with distinct cooling off periods between each murder. Which would make John Wayne Glover one of the first serial killers in Australia that police had to grapple with. And what set him apart from other killers wasn't that he supposedly began murdering at the age of 58, because the unique pathology of a serial killer nearly always has them escalate to murder by their early 20s, but it was his very specific choice of victim. Of all the documented serial killers in history, Glover is a rare anomaly because he exclusively targeted elderly women who were the same age as his own mother. It would be approximately seven months before the next murder would take place, which in typical serial killer fashion is what's considered a cool-off period. 
And during this time, the media would dub him the granny killer, which we think is gross because there's something about the word granny that makes him sound cutesy, which he absolutely is not. No. And we happen to agree with the 60 Minutes Australia, who renamed him as the coward killer. And while Glover was taking a break, during the seven months from rage killing anyone, his assaults against elderly women certainly did not stop. In her time spent interviewing John Wayne Glover in prison, journalist and author Lindsay Simpson gained fascinating insight into the overwhelming gerontophile urges that Glover could no longer keep reined in after the death of his mother. He said he was no longer satisfied to just look at the elderly women. He was now consumed with the urge to touch them too. Glover was both fascinated and repulsed by the nursing homes where he went on regular work visits as a meat pie salesman. During his visits, he developed a habit of wandering through the residence wards on his way to the kitchen or manager's office. He actually began looking forward to his Sunday afternoon visits with the mother-in-law that he disliked, S.E. Rolls, because they gave him another legitimate excuse to spend time in the nursing home. Glover would visit with her for a while, and then he would start to roam the halls, peering into rooms and searching for the oldest, most frail woman he could find. If he saw someone in a room alone and no other workers or visitors were around, he would go inside and sexually assault the incredibly vulnerable bedridden person by touching their breasts, thighs, or buttocks. If the woman he was touching became distressed, Glover didn't care. It only added to the excitement. <sighs> it only added to the excitement that the assault gave him. Caitlin, do you know how Glover said that the sight of his versed victim's hair sent him into a homicidal rage? This sends me into a homicidal rage because you and I both know from our time working in geriatric care mm -hmm. that this population is so incredibly vulnerable. They are so precious, especially if the person in a long-term care facility has advanced dementia or Alzheimer's. Or they, just limited mobility. Or limited mobility. Ex yeah, exactly. That's a fantastic point because they are utterly dependent and have to put their trust in the people surrounding mm -hmm. them. And the thought that someone is coming into this place being unbothered and excited at the opportunity to use that vulnerability to abuse that's yes it's disgusting and it's a level of evil that's even just difficult to wrap your mind around i mean i mean to attack or abuse any anyone is horrible absolutely there's no right to it but to attack a defenseless person it really is like if you take if you're on the spectrum of somebody who is a pedophile mm -hmm. and you swing it all the way the opposite yes. way mm -hmm. to somebody that is literally in the same state as a baby, but their body is elderly, it's that same level of vulnerability. And that is separate from being a gerontophile. Being attracted to someone who is elderly, if someone is consenting to that relationship who cares absolutely like have a blast but what we're talking about is somebody who wants to abuse and take advantage of a vulnerable that state that is a deranged psychotic person it yeah. is not a it's not just right. a kink it is a you're messed up in the right. head right he he could have been a gerontophile and that be completely separate from the need to dominate and control and abuse people that those two things are separate but they were layered together because he was who he was Ugh. yeah that actually pisses me off the yeah. thought of my loved one being in care and being abused in any shape or form let alone oh, by this man. fucking meat pie bitch yeah talk about homicidal rage that, that'll get you going <laughs> After all, who would believe these old women if he were caught? He was sure their accusations would be dismissed as hallucinations of an aged mind that was out of touch with reality. And for a while, it looked like he might be right. On June 6, 1989, Glover assaulted 77-year-old Marjorie Mosley at the Wesley Gardens Retirement Home in Belrose. She reported to the hospital staff and police that a man had put his hands under her nightgown, but she couldn't remember what the man looked like. So, nothing happened. 
On June 24, 1989, Glover visited the Caroline Chisholm Nursing Home in Lane Cove, where he lifted the dress of an elderly patient and touched her buttocks. God. In a nearby room, he slid his hand down the front of another resident's nightgown and touched her breasts. The woman called for help, and Glover was actually briefly questioned by staff at the hospital, but he talked his way out of it and left. On August 8, 1989, Glover assaulted the elderly Effie Carney in a back street of Lindfield on Sydney's Upper North Shore. At the time, he was not identified. On October 6, he pretended to be a doctor and ran his hands up the dress of a blind woman named Phyllis McNeil, who was a resident of the Wabinia Nursing Home in the Lower North Shore suburb of Neutral Bay. Phyllis called out for help, but Glover slipped away before she could be suspected. My face is actually getting hot. I'm getting, I'm like pissed. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, yeah, my blood pressure mm-hmm. is skyrocketing because I'm so angry right now. And this happened like however, 50 fucking years woman. ago, but I'm, it still makes me enraged. This is despicable beyond despicable. And while the sexual assaults between killings don't seem to fit the MO of a traditional serial killer... Criminal behavior experts have since speculated that Glover would have realized he would likely have been caught much sooner if he was committing murders in hospitals and nursing homes. So it was a way for him to engage in the sexual deviant behaviors that he found satisfying without taking the added risk of getting caught. But throughout all of these attacks, the themes of humiliating and degrading elderly women are clearly still there. Okay, so Caitlin, I want to present a theory to you and I want you to tell me what you think about this up until this point we've been hearing that these attacks are because Glover's mad at his mom he saw a woman who was closely resembling his mother and that sent him into this blind rage but I have a personal gossipy not psychologically probably accurate theory at all Go on. that these attacks maybe didn't have so much to do with John Glover being angry at his mother mm-hmm. because so many people have issues with their mother and don't go on to become crazy serial killers but it would make a lot more sense to me if these attacks were motivated because he had this extreme level of self-loathing over being a gerontophile and that his mother was kind of like the trigger that pushed him over the edge so for example like let's say he he maybe knew he had this attraction Mm -hmm. as like a teenager and she could have shamed him for it yeah um he would have already been angry at his mother because he would have been like, well, who is she to judge me? You know, she's promiscuous. Oh, she's yeah. a slut, blah, blah, blah. And I could see where that would have been a factor. He would have been jealous of the attention that he she was always giving to other men. Um, so there's definitely the, the angry at the mom aspect. Mm-hmm. But then I can see where he then would have begun resenting her even more than he did before because... As she began aging, mm-hmm. she would have resembled what he was attracted to. And this was like the part of his life that was his most like private, yeah. secret self. And he'd like kept that separated from her. But now she looks like that age bracket of women he's most attracted to. So she's now like in his mind inserted herself into yet another facet of his life and kind of like taken that over i do see that yeah and so he would have been like well fuck you yeah and now i'm even more pissed because like now i can't even fantasize about the kind of women that i like because i see you (laughs) well see my train of thought was he at a young age his first news was his mother yeah. Who I'm assuming at that time was of like, you know, probably young like adult. Our age. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. a young adult. I'm going to call myself yeah, a young adult. Yeah, we're a young, hot mother. I'm in my mid 20s. Uh, yeah. Um, but then as a child, you would think that he would find that repulsing. So he went, thankfully, he went up, not oh, down. But yeah. like, no, I see what you're saying. Like, 
as he aged Mm -hmm. what he found attractive or maybe he just couldn't find like in my mind i'm like he couldn't find women in the same category that uh, his mom was attractive so that extreme age discrepancy was kind of baked into him from the beginning because like that's what it kind of makes sense mm, to me but i like how you like i do totally see the as his mom got older that's when his rage hit Mm-hmm. and like it yeah her invading into his territory yet again yeah does make sense because you kind of are like you know as normal sexual people you think about like your parents having sex and all that i like don't it, like it's no nope. bio- well i mean just I like don't. hypothetically but like it's biologically hardwired in us to be repulsed by that i yes. feel like that's natural even though you're like not grossed out by your parents but you know what i'm saying like you just don't think about that yes i mean that's natural you, right not you like to. accept how you arrived here but you don't sit around and think about that but like Gosh. he he would have been forced to do that when his mom started looking like this very like niche bracket of women that he was very attracted to and like if you think about it it's not like there would have been granny porn it's at that time like i don't think there would have been you know yeah yeah like i think it's a thing now yeah but like it it would make sense that he would be offended that she was i also see if she dragged him along dates along to dates he would despise again women that age like yeah and going on a date with him like them oh that's true is that like yeah yeah don't take your child child on a uh, date with you and then not include them like just make them sit yeah, there like and watch go you to a bar. bowling alley like give yeah. them some coins for the slots i mean yeah. not the slots <laughs> on the, the, the arcade well clearly she did because he was really into the fruit <sighs> slots that's true but yeah it and the way that he would attack his victims and leave them after the fact it it also seems like a way that he could be trying to take back his sexual power and being like like i'm gonna show you you know you you're the sexually depraved one you're now on display for the world to see in the sexually like degrading position and maybe that would be a way he felt like he was taking back control from something that he in his warped little mind felt like was taken from him by his mother and i'm sure i feel like we could do a full episode just deep diving on his psyche oh yeah because it's very very bizarre because again there's just something about a mom and a son that like it's everybody talks about daddy issues but mommy issues are mom and son issues mom and son issues if there's issues the son becomes a serial killer So, just a few days later, on October 18, 1989, Glover followed 86-year-old widow Doris Cox along Spit Road in Mossman to her retirement village. In the secluded stairwell at the front of the house, he attacked her by ramming her face into a brick wall and throwing her on the ground. Incredibly, she survived the assault, but due to her dementia, she could not accurately remember the attack, and the description she gave to the police was that her assailant was a young man Possibly a teenager or skateboarder. (laughs) Those skateboarders. Those delinquents. (laughs) This would have thrown law enforcement way off the track of Glover, who at this point was 58 years old and paunchy with white hair. Not a skateboarder. (laughs) No, definitely not. Any possible forensic evidence was destroyed because like in the case of Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill, the area had been washed down by the well-intended neighbors before investigators arrived. A few weeks later on November 2nd, 78-year-old Dorothy Binky accepted Glover's kind offer to help carry her groceries to her apartment. She even asked him inside for a cup of tea, but he politely refused and left. For some reason, he left her untouched. Dorothy had been incredibly lucky because within minutes of leaving her home, Glover encountered 85-year-old widow Margaret Pod, who, like Dorothy, was walking home from the grocery store. Glover brutally attacked Margaret and this time the police were certain this was the work of the granny killer. She was hit on the back of the head with a blunt instrument 
and when she collapsed, Glover struck her again on the side of the head. Like previous victims, Glover rearranged her clothing, placed her shoes and her walking stick by her feet, stole her handbag, and left. Again, nobody saw the attack, but within a few minutes, her body was found by a young schoolgirl who thought at first Margaret's body was a pile of clothing that had been dumped on the sidewalk. Neighbors yet again washed down the crime scene. As the police and ambulance were on their way, Glover rummaged through the contents of Margaret Pod's purse on the grounds of the nearby golf club. Then, just like before, he scurried off to the Mossman RSL club to spend all $300 he had stolen from the elderly woman on the fruit slot machines. A mere 24 hours later, 81-year-old Olive Cleveland became the fourth victim of the depraved coward killer. Olive had been sitting on a bench and enjoying the fresh air just outside of her Wesley Gardens retirement village where she lived in the suburb of Belrose. Glover joined her on the bench and struck up a conversation with her, but whatever he was saying made Olive very uncomfortable, so she got up and started to walk back towards the main building. Glover seized her from behind and forced her down a ramp into a secluded side lane where he struck her and repeatedly pushed her head into the concrete before removing her pantyhose and tying them tightly around her neck. Her clothing, shoes, and walking stick were placed at her feet and $60 was stolen from her handbag. And can you guess what happened to all the blood and any possible forensic evidence at this crime scene? Before investigators had a chance to get their hands on it, it had been washed completely clean by helpful neighbors who assumed the elderly woman had fallen. Okay, y'all. The first time this happened, I completely understand. They thought it was a fall. Okay, kind neighbors. Yep. The second time, slightly more questionable. Yep. The third time, there should have been a PSA issued all over North Shore being like, if you see that an elderly lady has fallen, do nothing. Yeah, exactly. Because by that time, they were aware that they had a serial killer on their hands. They were putting headlines out everywhere. And they were put having police patrol from like the hours of 3 to 5 p.m. So Genevieve, there were pantyhose tied around their neck. So did she How does that fall? equate a fall? <laughs> did they fall and slip up there? I mean, for fuck's sake. Like, I know this was the late 80s, so those were more delicate DNA. Forensics were still in their infancy, like we yeah. learned from the Jennifer Levin case. Yeah. But they were definitely doing stuff with fingerprints. Oh, yeah. And it genuinely makes you wonder if he could have been caught the very first time this was done, if they had managed to get fingerprints or shoe prints, because Glover was definitely in the systems for all his previous offenses. Yes, that first, was it the first or second time? No, the first one was washed down. But, yikes. Yep. (sighs) But let that be a lesson, people. Put two and two together. If everyone is screaming about the granny killer and suddenly there's a granny in a pool of blood, don't touch anything. Seriously. Put the garden hose down. Yeah, calm down. That must have been one clean neighborhood. Uh, you know what? They probably were trying to uphold an image. Mm, they probably had those like neighborhood watch committees where HOVs. they would like report you if your grass was higher than two inches. I would not survive in one of those. Three weeks after Olive Cleveland's brutal killing on November 23rd, Glover was sitting at the bar in the Buena Vista Hotel in Mossman when he spotted a 93-year-old widow named Muriel Falconer across the street as she made her way home with her shopping. 93. I, I cannot. Glover began following her, stopping briefly at his car, which was parked right across the street from the fucking police station to retrieve his hammer and gloves. He then followed the partially deaf and blind Muriel undetected all the way to her home on Muston Street. As she opened her front door, Glover swiftly came up behind her, clapped a hand around her mouth, and pushed her the rest of the way inside, then repeatedly struck her in the head and neck with a hammer. When she fell, 
Glover tried to remove the elderly woman's pantyhose, but as he did so, she began regaining consciousness and yelled for help. Glover struck her again with the hammer until she lost consciousness. Like before, he removed her undergarments and used them to strangle her. He placed her shoes by her feet and left with $100 that he stole from her purse. Muriel's body would be discovered the following afternoon by a concerned neighbor who came into the house with a spare key and was met with the horrific sight of blood everywhere and the elderly woman lying deceased and exposed with her legs pointed towards the entrance of her home. Finally, this crime scene was left intact. Thank you, God. And was it her caved-in head? Was Jesus it What was it Christ. that gave it away? I'm surprised the neighbor didn't come in with a fucking power washer <laughs> ready to go. And forensic evidence, such as bloody shoe prints, were able to be collected. Police were now starting to hone in on a suspect. It was a white man who had been identified by the neighbor as middle-aged, portly, and gray-haired. The reward for information leading to an arrest was increased to $250,000, and police were desperate for this nightmare to come to an end. On January 11, 1990, Glover paid a visit to the Greenwich Hospital in River Road, Greenwich, on his pie sales round. He was wearing his work uniform and carrying a clipboard when he entered the hospital's hospice ward where four elderly and ill women were on comfort measures, meaning they were close to passing, so literally they're just being made as comfortable as possible. These patients included an 82-year-old advanced cancer patient named Daisy Roberts. Glover approached her and asked if she was losing any body heat, then proceeded to pull up her nightgown and molest her. Roberts yelled for help, upon which a hospital sister found Glover in the ward. Yay, Daisy, and yay, hospital sister. And Finally, fuck him. Yes, disgusting. When he was confronted, Glover ran, and the sister followed him, wrote down his car's registration number, and notified police immediately. Snaps for sister Finally, somebody did something right. Hail Mary. Finally. Hail Mary. Hail sister. <laughs> Fortunately, even more hospital staff members were able to identify Glover because he was familiar to them from doing his pie rounds there. One week later, the police returned to the hospital with a photograph of Glover, which Sister Davis and Daisy Roberts were able to positively identify. Although this was a huge breakthrough, the hospital assaults were not initially linked to the murders, so they weren't reported to the murder task force, which by now consisted of around 70 people, for three full weeks. Uh, <sighs> let's just drag this out as long as possible. Once they became aware of his name, detectives from Chatswood's police station contacted and confirmed Glover's identity and job as a pie salesman via his employers right away. Glover was called by detectives and asked to attend an interview at the station the following day, but he didn't show up. Apparently, as soon as he realized that the police were closing in, Glover had unsuccessfully tried to complete suicide by swallowing an entire bottle of pills and was recovering at the Royal North Shore Hospital. His ex-wife, Gay, recalled that when she and one of their daughters went to visit him in the hospital, he was semi-conscious and through his muddled mental state was trying to explain to her that half of him was good and half was bad. And of course, both her and Glover's daughter tried to reassure him by saying, no dad, you're good. Don't think things like this. But Glover was insistent in repeating, no, no, good, bad. For Gay, this was the moment she realized that her husband of 20 plus years was in her words, troubled. By George, I think she's got it. <laughs> but prior to that, to Gay and to everyone who knew him, John Wayne Glover blended seamlessly into the quiet, middle-upper-class suburban world he lived and worked in. 
His friends even called him the Duke. <laughs> the dick. <laughs> because he was so suave and charming in social settings. And Glover relished in excitement of having so manipulated everyone around him that he could carry out on such grotesque and violent double life. Right before his second victim, he mm-hmm. actually carried one lady's groceries in and she asked him to come inside for, for some tea. tea. And at that point, the whole city was on high alert granny killer mode. So it's terrifying that he was able to turn on that charm and that ability to so disarm people. Yeah, he was in her house. Yeah, that she was like, this total stranger is totally fine to be invited into my home when everyone is like, don't invite strange men into your home. That's truly terrifying. Think about any incredibly infamous criminal name that most of us are familiar with. John Wayne Gacy, Ed Kemper, Ted Bundy, Dennis Rader, and obviously John Wayne Glover. No one who knew them once. The horrendous things they did came to light. Yep, that tracks. They were always a real creep. They're always like, oh my god, they seem so normal or even like in a tier above as being a leader or a good servant in their community. Gacy was a clown who often worked charity events for children and was always hosting parties at his home. Ed Kemper was drinking buddies with and a confidant to the local police force who were investigating the literal murders he was committing. Ted Bundy worked a suicide hotline and was a part of a neighborhood watch committee. Dennis Rader constantly volunteered at his church and was a Boy Scout leader. And like you've already heard, old John Wayne Glover was his local nursing home's top volunteer. Lindsay Simpson, the journalist who spent over 40 hours interviewing Glover, said even while she was sitting across from him in prison with full knowledge of the heinous crimes he had committed, Glover maintained an air that about him was so charming and smooth she could easily see how he was able to talk his way into or out of just about any situation and make people feel at ease around him. This is a particularly unsettling skill of the seven common traits of a true psychopath. And Glover is a textbook example. Superficial charm, check. Puffed up self-esteem, check. Deceitfulness, check. Shallow emotion or callous indifference to others' emotion, check. Boredom and a need for stimulation, check. A history of shady conduct, check. And a riddle of contradictions due to their skill of presenting themselves as a likable and even sensitive. Check, 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 check. Yep. A plus. So... While he was still recovering from his overdose, police paid Glover a visit at the hospital, and he refused to be interviewed, but he did allow them to take his photograph. However, police ended up with something even better than an interview. Hospital staff had found what appeared to be a suicide note scribbled by Glover on the center of a page of 4 and 20 Pies business paper. He had written, quote, no more grannies. And Essie, remember that's Glover's mother-in-law, started it. Since, for some reason, no one in law enforcement has managed to get their lives together and do anything quickly, it will come as no surprise that it was another two whole weeks before the bizarre note and photo of Glover got passed to the 70-member murder task force. But as soon as the note and photograph were in their hands, detectives had no doubt that this was their guy. And now they just had to prove it. Can you imagine just the holy triangle of everything that note must have given them coming all together and the lights just going on like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) because with that note, that would have confirmed to them that he had the means Mm -hmm. for having access to these women in the community while keeping a low profile because he's, you know, paunchy middle-aged pie salesman who lived in the area. They would have had a motive because he wrote Essie started it. Essie was an elderly woman who was close to him And all of his victims were elderly women that he killed in rage-fueled attacks. And he had opportunity endlessly because, again, Mm -hmm. as a pie salesman, he could literally be anywhere in the neighborhood at any given time. And he certainly was. That he was. Killing people. 
So knowing all of this, police still had one massive piece of the puzzle missing before they could connect Glover to the six murders on top of the nursing home assaults and make an arrest. And that puzzle piece was hard evidence. And reminder again to all the well-meaning neighbors out there, if you happen upon a lot of blood anywhere, please wait for a confirmation whether or not it is a crime scene before you take your garden hose to it. That's all. Breach. <laughs> I'm Meryl Streep during The Devil Wears Prada. That's all. Even though Glover was eventually interviewed about the nursing home assaults and of course denied all these accusations, police did not so much as mention the other murders to him for fear it would arouse his suspicion that they were closing in. But the police still had enough circumstantial evidence against Glover to put him under constant police surveillance in the hopes that he would give them something to finally incriminate himself as their granny killer. Glover hated being tailed everywhere he went and would always try and lose the police by driving around the block more than once or drive the wrong way up one-way streets. And if that is not criminally psychotic behavior, then I don't know what is. You know, Christine has driven down a one-way street. <laughs> and when I informed... That's my mother. And when I informed her that she was driving down said one-way street, she popped onto the sidewalk. Hmm. You might want to watch that she's one. She's got crazy eyes, so... She popped up on the sidewalk. <laughs> Good thing there was nobody on that sidewalk. <laughs> I don't remember. I blacked out. <laughs> At 10 a.m. on March 19th, 1990, police followed Glover as he got in his car and drove across Mossman to Beauty Point when he stopped outside the home of 60-year-old divorcee Joan Sinclair, with whom Glover had apparently had a relationship with for quite some time. Some sources said their relationship was platonic, others said it was full-blown dirty down under, and we tend to lean towards dirty down under, because it just checks out. It just checks out, and unless they were playing go fish yeah and she was here's the only argument that i could see plausible for why it would be platonic is if he was a true geronto file she would actually have been his same age yeah so and 60 doesn't put you at geriatric no definitely not and so that we don't care we don't care what you were doing john wing glover because whatever it does was probably messed up so Police sat in their vehicle waiting for Glover to emerge, but by 1 p.m., there was still no sign of him or any movement from within the house. They weren't in panic mode yet because it had only been a couple of hours, but then 2 p.m. rolled around, then 3, and 4, and at 5 p.m., when there was still nothing, police and the surveillance team started getting a real good butt sweat. By 6 p.m., they were done. Two uniformed police pounded on the front door to no avail, so they went around back to try and peer in the glass porch door. A hammer covered in blood that was already mostly dried was visible on a mat on the floor inside, and with that, they broke the door down. Four detectives rushed into the house to find the body of Joan Sinclair on the floor, she had been gruesomely bludgeoned and laid out naked from the waist down, with her pantyhose cinched tightly around her neck. Her battered head was wrapped in a bundle of blood-soaked towels, and Glover was found naked and unconscious in her bathtub. Glover did confess to police that he murdered Joan Sinclair, and confirmed that they had been having a relationship for some time. He said that he had beaten her about the head with his hammer before removing her pantyhose and strangling her with them. He then rolled her body onto a mat, wrapped four towels around her head to slow the flow of blood, then dragged her body across the room, which left the trail of blood that officers found. He had arranged her by the door like she was found by police before he filled the bathtub, 
swallowed a handful of Valium with a bottle of VAT-69, slashed his left wrist, and got naked before <laughs> laying down in the tub to die. The police were beyond relieved that Glover had somehow survived this second attempt to complete suicide and give them a confession. Otherwise, they feared ongoing speculation whether or not Glover was actually the murderer. His trial began on March 28, 1990, and John Wayne Glover pleaded not guilty to his crimes on the grounds of diminished responsibility. A psychiatrist said Glover had built up hostility and aggression since his childhood against his mother and then against his mother-in-law, who was said to trigger him. And then when she died, he had to take out his aggression on someone else, and that he did so while fully and completely sane. The Crown Prosecutor agreed and maintained that Glover was well aware of his actions the entire time, made especially apparent by the fact that he would steal money from victims and immediately spend it on the poker machines that he was addicted to, and would take the time to clean the hammer he kept in the car with acid between attacks. And because Glover was impotent and could not perform sexually, his move of removing and tightly tying the victim's pantyhose around their neck was both to ensure that they were dead as well as make it appear to the police that this was the work of a sexually motivated killer. I do think, I have to say that I think these killings, it seems like in the trial that they're trying to say that they weren't sexually motivated because he was impotent, mm -hmm. but... Just because somebody is not able to maintain an erection does not mean that they're not a sexual person. I think if anything, he did it to get off. And that's like, what I'm... Yeah, exactly. Like, there's plenty of other things that somebody can do mm -hmm. to receive sexual pleasure or be gratified in that way. And so, it's... Isn't that a very, like antiquated idea too to be like well because somebody can't maintain an erection that they clearly aren't sexually motivated i that doesn't make sense to yeah me. he he couldn't maintain an erection because he'd had cancer that didn't prevent him from molesting exactly. a cancer-ridden patient exactly it did not prevent his hands from wandering down people's gowns right it, exactly and he was touching them in sexually intimate areas exactly. so he was whether it was wanting that power and control or receiving some sort of gratification it all gave him pleasure in a sexual also, sense to me the pantyhose being naked from the waist down yeah they obviously they've said that they did not find semen makes sense that does yeah. not mean he didn't do other exactly. things exactly yeah, exactly. Or that it didn't excite him sexually. Yes. And just because he wasn't physically able to, sorry to be gross, but produce semen, which mm -hmm. they typically look for when someone is raped post-mortem, that doesn't mean that he wasn't receiving sexual gratification. Exactly. From it. And so I, yeah, I, I don't agree with that at all. And uh, I think that that's a very outdated mindset. Mm-hmm. After the guilty verdict was delivered, the presiding judge issued the following statement. Quote, Glover is able to choose when to attack and when to stay his hand. He is cunning and able to cover his tracks. It is plain that he has chosen his moments carefully. Although the crimes have been opportunistic, he has not gone in where the risks were overwhelming. The period since January 1989 has been one of intense and serious crime involving extreme violence inflicted on elderly women accompanied by theft or robbery of their property. On any view, the prisoner has shown himself to be exceedingly dangerous person, and that view was mirrored by the opinions of the psychiatrist who gave evidence at his trial. I have no alternative other than to impose the maximum available sentence, which means that the prisoner will be required to spend the remainder of his natural life in jail. It is inappropriate to express any date as to release on parole. Having regard to those life sentences, this is not a case where the prisoner may ever be released pursuant to the to order of this court. He is never to be released. Quote. So long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodbye, 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 John Wayne Glover. Hee <laughs> hee. Now, before we wrap up for today, there's one more thing that we need to talk about. 
Remember how we said it was extremely unusual within the pathology of a serial killer for that killer to not begin killing until late middle age? Well, police investigating Glover's killings were left with the nagging question of whether or not he'd killed before. And Glover would in fact taunt police until his death, suggesting that there may have been others, but never giving police enough to charge him. In Melbourne, Australia, four elderly women had been murdered in the late 1950s and 60s. And on the central coast of New South Wales, where there were two other murders, law enforcement had very good reason to believe these were in fact Glover, because the central coast is where he would travel to visit his mother and half-sister Frida, and where he was a pie salesman. In an episode of 60 Minutes Australia, Detective Brian Collis, who was the lead investigator into the murders of the elderly women on the Central Coast, actually broke a 30-year silence in his retirement and offered to 60 Minutes Australia some shocking evidence that almost certainly made John Wayne Glover Australia's worst serial killer. On August 17, 1984, 72-year-old Josephine McDonald was murdered five whole years before the Mossman granny killings. Brian Collis told Australia 60 Minutes that Josephine had been struck with a hammer and had her pantyhose tied around her neck as if to strangle her. She was also found lying on the bathroom floor with her legs apart in the same manner as the victims to come, positioned such that Whomever was walking into the place could see exactly what he'd done to humiliate her. On November 24, 1986, three years before the first of the granny killings, 83-year-old Wanda Amundsen was brutally killed on the central coast a few kilometers away from where McDonald was killed. She was also bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument that Brian Collis says was obvious to police at the scene as a hammer. She was again in the bathroom with her body and legs open towards the door like Josephine. This MO, the placing of the bodies, the method of death, all fits perfectly. And in Brian Collis's view, the killer was John Wayne Glover without a doubt. And as we know, on November 29, 1990, John Glover was sentenced to life in prison, never to be released, for the brutal murders of the six women in Sydney. But the links are undeniable between these killings and the four other elderly women in the late 50s and 60s. And then the death of Josephine McDonald in 1984 and Wanda Amundsen in 1986. By the time police suspected Glover of these murders, he was already in prison for life. Hard evidence in the Melbourne killings was lost with the passage of time, but those who dealt with Glover are certain that despite his six convictions, he still got away with murder. If in fact he did commit all of the murders he's suspected of, as well as the ones he's convicted of, in the great pool of killers, he would have been the most prolific serial killer anywhere, but particularly in Australia. And as horrific as these crimes were, they forced a major re-examination of investigation tactics in New South Wales police and across the entire country. Glover's third attempt to complete suicide would prove to be successful. On September 10, 2005, Glover would be found hanging in his Lithgow Maximum Security prison cell and pronounced dead at 1.25 p.m. He was 72 years old. In a final gesture before his death, he had handed his last outside visitor a sketch. The sketch was of a park with two palm trees, and in the middle of the right palm tree, the number 9 can be seen between leaves and branches. The number 9 is believed to either represent the number of murders that Glover committed or the number of unsolved murders still out there that he committed. These nine additional victims, whose names we want to make sure are spoken, may include Elsie Boyce, 63, died on June 3, 1967, Emmy Mae Anderson, 78, 
died on October 19, 1961. Irene Kittle, 61, died on March 22, 1963. Christina Yankos, 63, died on April 9, 1968. Florence Broadhurst, 78, died on October 16, 1977. Josephine McDonald, 72, died August 29, 1984. Wanda Amundsen, 83, died November 21, 1986, and the 8th is unknown. And that concludes our coverage of the coward killer, John Wayne Glover. As former healthcare workers in the geriatric field, I'm sure you feel the same way, Caitlin, but this case was particularly difficult to get through and made me quite emotional at times because these victims deserved so much more Mm -hmm. than the way that their lives were taken from them. They should have still had years to enjoy being with their families and eventually passing away peacefully surrounded by their loved ones like anyone Mm -hmm. deserves to except John Wayne Glover. It's just personal almost. Yeah. Because We have both been beside someone as they are leaving this earth. Yes. We have cared for people on hospice. Mm, That one makes me the absolute most mad. Somebody on end of life comfort comfort measures. measures. Yeah. It's an incredible honor to be entrusted with the care of someone who is reaching the end of their life. I mean, anytime a resident would pass away, we'd have a journal to write to their family and Every single time I wrote, thank you for letting me take care of your mom or your dad. Yes. Yeah. Because it is an honor. They might have been mean sometimes, like any human. I mean, we were scratched at, we were yelled at, cursed at. That's healthcare. That's life. But they are people. They are vulnerable people. Yep. And they had many things to teach us about life. And there's so much value to being in that stage of life Mm -hmm. and so much wisdom and just there's a richness and a value to getting to that age that kind of gets dismissed because in the West, we don't value reaching old age, I believe, the way that we should. And so to be so disrespected by someone that just anyone yeah by by anyone but somebody that was able to so callously cause harm and enjoyed it it's enraging that it took so long to end and I just really really hope that nothing like this ever ever happens again I mean there are a lot of lock codes on nursing homes now that's very true got wanderers yeah And if you want a break from hearing about horrible serial killers, come and hang out with us next week because we're going to be telling you the survival story of Julianne Diller, who survived a two-mile fall from an airplane into the Amazon jungle. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, that would be great, at Camping is Cancelled. Drop us a Gmail at campingiscanceled at gmail.com or if you really like our content and want to subscribe and get some nice little perks you can follow us on patreon at campingiscanceled hope to see you next week bye